Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, and my name's James Whitmore. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. In today's show, we're going to hear about how a fungus could help protect little penguins, and how scientists have found a new way of studying how healthy whales are. But first, here's some ocean news. This week, the IPCC released its third and final part of its major report into the state of climate change. It shows growth of greenhouse gas emissions have slowed over the past decade, although they are still growing and remain at record highs. For a 50% chance of staying under 1.5 degrees, emissions have to halve by 2030, reach zero by 2050, and go negative afterwards. Fortunately, opportunities to make a Affordable cuts to emissions have increased sharply since the last IPCC report in 2014. The Great Barrier Reef has experienced a sixth mass bleaching event and the fourth in the past decade. Aerial surveys of, of the reefs show that reefs in the northern and central regions have experienced severe bleaching and coral deaths. Sea temperatures on the Great Barrier Reef are about one degree above average for this time of year. This mass bleaching event is the first to occur during La Nina, which usually leads to cooler waters. We'll be right back after this announcement. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Who doesn't love penguins? Little penguins live along Victoria's coast coming into shore to roost, breed and to molt. But their coastal habitat is being threatened by a weed, sea spurge. It's an introduced plant that spreads easily and is difficult to control. But scientists have recently found something that might help control the spurge and help the penguins. It's a fungus. To find out more, I spoke to Mark Rodriguez from Parks Victoria. Hi Mark, can you tell us what is sea spurge and why is it a problem? Okay, so 
Uh, sea spurge is a coastal weed. It originates uh, in the Mediterranean area, um, particularly in the area of southern Europe around France, Spain, um, where it's actually quite a common coastal plant. It occurs both on the Atlantic coast as well as on the Mediterranean coast. Um, and it's been actually in Victoria and, in fact, right across the whole southern part of Australia for probably the better part of over 100 years or so. Um, it's a major invasive uh, dune plant or sand uh, beach pl- uh, invader because it has seeds that spread very effectively through the seawater. So it's got the opportunity to spread incredibly large distances. Uh, it's a nightmare for um, for volunteers, for committees of management and for man- uh, uh, coastal managers such as Parks Victoria because of that capacity for it to, to spread very quickly. Uh, once it's in on the beach, um, it generally self-establishes self-sowing populations, self-seeding populations, and manages, manages to establish itself very, very firmly on the beach, uh, taking quite a, a good deal of effort to get rid of. Um, yeah, historically, it's been largely removed through hand uh, pulling or having volunteers and staff and contractors removing things by hand by actually pulling it out, um, or alternatively, uh, particularly for more remote areas, using sort of traditional uh, chemical controls or sprays basically to control it. So um, the opportunity to find something that works a little bit better, that doesn't involve lots of people getting out and uh, spending uh, far too many hours pulling this stuff out of some of the most remote parts of the southern Australian coast, um, is a godsend. Mm. What is the impact it has on ecosystems? Well, it's essentially it's an invader, so it, it blocks up and takes over the space on the back of the dunes where animals like beach-nesting birds, things like, for example, hooded plovers or, uh, in the case of some of the work we're doing in Western Victoria, places where little penguins might come up on the beach to get access to their burrows and things like that. So it creates a physical obstacle and it becomes quite a thick and almost, I won't say impenetrable, but a very difficult uh, space for, for birds particularly to either nest or to be able to move through the roots systems themselves sort of get into the sand and they can go quite a long way in and tangle up there and again for anything that's trying to burrow into the sand dune itself uh, that creates a bit of a challenge um, and as I said it's particular uh, the particular reason why it's a problem for us is because it is so effective at colonising. Uh, you can have volunteers go and remove sea spurge from remote places and be back in 12 months time and found pretty much the same thing uh, back there again and uh, all of the impacts on the birds or the uh, other coastal wildlife uh, are Back in, back in force. Mm. So at the end of March, um, we heard that there was a fungus released uh, at Port Campbell National Park in, here in Victoria. Can you tell us about this fungus? What does it do? Okay, so um, the CSIRO, who are the lead for this particular project, have been working and recognising the working on the issues around sea spurs for probably the last five years or so. So it's got quite a history. Uh, and it's taken quite a bit of time to actually get to the, the exciting part now of actually undertaking field trials where um, uh, material has actually been released into the environment with the, with the purpose of actually seeing how well it establishes itself um, as, a, as a pathogen or it establishes itself and infects the plant. The CSIRO basically did some uh, initial work back in France where they surveyed the Atlantic and the Mediterranean coasts and found uh, a number of potential candidate uh, fungi or bike, what we generally refer under the bio, 
control banner uh, fungi that or pathogens that basically directly impact on the sea spurge health. So they were looking specifically for something uh, in its home range that might affect the sea spurge and cause them to either die or um, or to be weakened by by the uh, presence of the pathogen. Um, so they were very they were successful in identifying a couple. They actually uh, did some initial trial work and particularly looked at the um, uh, likelihood of, it, of the risks associated with um, introducing this particular fungus into Australia. So that was that work was actually conducted by CSIRO in France first. Uh, the material was then imported, uh, kept in CSIRO secure labs up in um, uh, up in Canberra uh, for further testing, and it was tested on a whole range of. Uh, plant species that are related to the, the sea spurge. The sea spurge itself is uh, in a genus called Euphorbia and there are quite a number of native species of Euphorbia that are uh, here in, in Australia. So we were, you know, they were particularly concerned and make, wanted to make sure that this thing wasn't going to be the genie that gets out of the bottle and starts to impact all the native plants as well. So that, you know, period of testing over two, two and a half, three years or so, um, resulted in the Australian government actually giving approval for its release into the environment. Uh, CSIRO then worked with a number of uh, uh, state government entities, agencies, uh, got some funding through the New South Wales Environment Trust to scale up and uh, do some initial releases, which started last year in New South Wales. Uh, similar work's been done now in Tasmania, and we're excited that uh, Victoria's finally on the map. Uh, we've started our own trials in Victoria back in March. Can you tell us where the fungus is being released across Victoria? Yeah, so um, we've been very fortunate to uh, be working closely with CSIRO and nominated a number of sites within uh, national parks and other areas of Parks Victoria manage across Victoria, including some of our most beautiful places, uh, some of the wildest places. And so um, parks that are taking part of the trial at the moment include Wilson's Promontory, uh, the Mornington Peninsula National Park, uh, some of the small reserves around the Queenscliff area, uh, down at Port Campbell uh, National Park, and that's the one that's probably got the most attention with its uh, potential benefits to the penguins down there. And the final site that we're uh, undertaking trials in uh, is Discovery Bay Coastal Park in the beautiful far southwest of Victoria. Mm. So most people are, of course, familiar with the uh, the accident of the cane toads. But, Absolutely. Yeah, and obviously a lot of work has gone into figuring out that this, this fungus is safe to release. Have, have um, biocontrols been used to against um, coastal weeds before, or any weeds? Yeah, look, there are actually quite a number of them. The group of people who have been developing this in, in, in CSRO have actually developed a number of very successful uh, agents that have been useful in the control of coastal weeds. Uh, there's one in particular, a weed that's, that's prevalent. It's a member of the asparagus family. It goes by the rather attractive name of bridal creeper. I think it used to be used originally in floral arrangements for, for brides. But um, it's a, it is a very invasive weed. It's got a very uh, persistent root system that once it gets established is, is very difficult to remove. And uh, the same team that did the uh, uh, working on the sea spurge trials at the moment uh, undertook a very successful program to both uh, trial and then actually release that particular fung uh, fungus, a biocontrol agent, out into the environment to control uh, the uh, bridal creeper weed. So, look, there's some really good track records of success in the weed space. Again, you're absolutely right. Um, we should all uh, be incredibly concerned that things coming in from other countries don't get the chance to get out of the, uh, be the genie that gets out of the bottle and creates havoc. Uh, and this is the reason why CSIRO in particular are so rigorous in terms of the protocols they follow to, to uh, assist the security of these things. Hmm. So what are you expecting to happen now that the fungus is being released? Is, is it, will it, how will it help control the weed? Could it actually eliminate it? Um, 
look, I think eliminate's probably that would be a dream. Um, mm. It probably won't eliminate it. So the fungus itself, and we've already seen some good uh, good results. I mentioned the trials in New South Wales that started last year, and they've, they've had, I guess, some mixed success. There's been some extremely good takes uh, in terms of uh, infections actually being observed under some conditions, and in other places it probably wasn't quite as what, uh, what the researchers were hoping for. Uh, here in Victoria, uh, we did our first release around about six or seven weeks ago uh, just off Queenscliff, uh, a little island out there called Sand Island, just to the north of the harbour. Um, and uh, the, the rangers who did that release with me and, and Syro uh, at that stage went back about, uh, about a week and a half ago and actually had a look at the areas where they'd infected uh, the plants. Um, and they did actually start to see some signs of lesions on the leaves and on the stems, which is what you'd look for. Ultimately, what this does is it doesn't kill the plant outright, but it weakens the plant, and the the net result is that the plants produce a lot less seed than they would do normally. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seed, therefore, is not as readily able to spread itself across the coastline, and through time, and particularly if this thing becomes naturalised in populations, um, as I said earlier, away from you know, places where people can easily get access and this weed is a particular problem for some of our most beautiful remote and wild beaches in Victoria. Um, what we're hopeful of is that the uh, the fungus itself will be established in the sea surge weed population and spread itself quite naturally around, give us all a bit of a chop out, volunteers, penguins and uh, uh, park managers. Mm. All right. Is there anything local communities can do to get involved? Yeah, look, this is a this is a trial that, that we're undertaking. We've got a, a close relationship with Syro in relation to this trial at the moment because the trials uh, essentially involve setting up sites, undertaking some quite detailed quantitative work to look at the uh, the concentration of plants, the density of plants in particular sites to then go back on a regular period, so every six months uh, for the next three years to actually look at how this particular fungus established itself in that local population. So that's quite a high level and there'll be quite a lot of you know involvement of CSRO directly in that one. However, uh, people involved with land care groups or uh, community groups, coast care groups around the coast can certainly be part of the trials as well. They probably won't be to the same level of scientific scrutiny and uh, monitoring is what happens with the trials we're doing in our uh, six sites across Parks Victoria's estate. Uh, but uh, at the same time, they'll be really useful for testing the efficacy of this thing in terms of its establishment in local populations and you know, ultimately leading to that uh, broader spread of this, uh, this fungus across the, this biocontrol across the whole state. Uh, CSIRO are uh, open to and inviting community groups to be a part of it. And if you just Google CSIRO's uh, Sea Spurge programs, you can find links through to the, uh, to the program lead, Dr Gavin Hunter, who's keen to hear from volunteers and community groups interested in this, in this program. That was Mark Rodrigo from Parks Victoria. After the break, we're going to be talking whales. But first, here's a tune. This is King Stingray with Camp Dog. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio.
Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. That was King Stingray with Camp Dog, and you're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Every year in winter, whales arrive in Australia's water waters after a summer in Antarctica. While they're here, they usually don't eat very much, surviving on food reserves they pot on during the summer. Whale numbers are rebounding after the end of commercial whaling in the 1970s, but like everything in the oceans, climate change poses a threat to their recovery. How can scientists figure out how climate change might affect whales? One way is by studying baleen, the filters they use to collect food. To find out more, I spoke to Adelaide Dedden, a PhD student, student at the University of New South Wales. Adelaide, can you tell us what baleen is and what do whales use it for? Sure. So baleen is made of keratin, so the same material as your fingernails and hair. And there's two types of whales. We've got baleen whales and tooth whales. So baleen are considered the, the whales without teeth, and they have these compression plates in their mouth uh, that hang from their upper jaw. They've got about, like, 200 in their mouth. They've got heaps. They're about one metre long in humpback whales, and they use these to filter feed. So they'll open their mouth up. Um, really uh, wide and then lunge feed through the water and they uh, filter out all the water through these plates and then the uh, prey gets stripped inside because it's kind of like a broom-like uh, structure, hair structure in the middle. All right, let's talk about your research. How does baleen tell us about the climate? So we use something called stable isotopes in the baleen. And so baleen doesn't necessarily tell us about the climate, but it tells us about what they're eating and where they're going. And then we can look at those behaviours next to environmental change to look at how they're responding to different changes in climate. So essentially what we did is we, we look at these chemical signals that assimilate throughout the baleen plate as the baleen plate grows, because like your fingernails, it just continuously grows throughout the life of the whale. So it provides up to around four years' worth of data per individual. So these biochemical signals in the baleen can tell us what they may be eating and the regions where they may be feeding in. So what we did is we got about four years' worth of data per individual from around 1960s to now. So this was from individuals from uh, baleen plates from museum samples and also already published data in the literature. And what we did is what we kind of extrapolated all this data and looked at matching environmental changes through time with their, with their uh, isotope values. So we looked at changes in uh, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, so La Nina phases, which I'm sure a lot of people are experiencing the impacts of La Nina right now. So what we found is that we found that humpback whales on our east coast of Australia after La Nina phases uh, showing signs of reduced feeding success. And then this was also backed up by other research that has found that they're also in poor body condition during these times and that they're most likely to strand, unfortunately, during these times as well. So, unfortunately, uh, La is not looking good for a lot of people at the moment. Mm. So, can you break it down a little bit for us? So, these chemicals that you're studying in the baleen, yeah. how do they get from the food to, their, to, to the baleen? Yeah, so... Basically, everything that we eat, 
assimilate signals into our tissues. So uh, it's basically a form of natural tagging that's based on intrinsic biochemical information. So what a whale eats will have its own isotope value. So that assimilates into the whale's baleine and we can match if we know what uh, the, the values of their prey are, then we can go into the whale's baleen and find those values and we say, okay, during that time they could potentially be eating krill in Antarctica versus, oh, this time they're eating krill, uh, Australian krill off Eden in New South Wales. So they have distinct values um, based on what prey they are and based on whereabouts geographically they are because these isotope values at the base of the food chain will vary will vary um, at different latitudes within the Southern Ocean as well as have their own value based on what species they are as well. Wow, and so from that you can tell that the whales during La Nina are, are eating less. Yeah, exactly, because you can also see from stable isotope analysis um, different physiological changes in feeding and fasting. So we know that these whales off the East Coast undergo these annual migrations each year where they have to fast for the majority of time when they're in Australian waters. So you can see that they have prolonged fasting values during these times. They haven't had, you know, a, a very good feeding uh, season the summer before, and then you've got, you know, increased fasting values from that year when they're on their migration. So is that a bit like tree rings? Yeah, exactly like tree rings. Yeah. Yeah. So you can tell the seasonal changes in what they're eating and, and where they and where they're going. So did you find any changes? So you said you looked at whales from the 1960s to, to today. Did you notice any changes over that whole period of time? Um, so we didn't actually look at that in this research from certain decades. It was more just looking at the values that they had during different environmental conditions. But what we're looking at into the future is now looking at, um, you know, we, we know these trends of the past and how climate has influenced them from the 1960s to now. And now that we know what those historical trends are, we, uh, we're looking at being able to forecast into the future of, say, you know, knowing an environmental condition that's occurring at the time and being like, okay, what can we expect the whales to be doing right now? What can we expect this year on their migration? Are they going to be in good body condition, poor body condition? You know, have they had a successful feeding period before their migration and that kind of thing? Hmm. And does this, do you have any sense of what this might mean for whales going forward? You know, I mean, La Nina and El Nino are very difficult to predict um, as the climate changes, but does this raise concerns about how whales will fare as the climate warms? Yeah, so there's, there's a few things on that. So these humpback whales of the East Coast have just been taken off the endangered list, which is fantastic, and they're no longer facing threats of commercial whaling. However, they, they are facing these threats of climate change. And um, going into the future, we're seeing that La Nina events are becoming more frequent and more trickier to predict. So knowing that this particular population off the East Coast of Australia is having these negative effects with La Nina is concerning. Um, and then on the other hand, we see that the whale, the humpback whales on the west coast of Australia don't seem to have this influence with La Nina. In fact, it's quite the opposite that they show that they're having better feeding years during this time. So there's such massive spatial variability across the Southern Ocean in terms of, you know, what 
climate is driving and how climate drives their resource availability. So looking into the future, particularly for the East Coast whales, um, it is concerning that they have this um, relationship with La Nina. However, these whales have also shown signs of having increased feeding off waters in Australia. So we're seeing whales supplement their feeding, particularly off areas of New South Wales where there are, you know, patches of productivity along their migration route. So while they do face this threat going into the future, they have shown signs of being um, quite adaptable to different productive regions off Australia while they migrate. In, in this research and in other research, have, have you looked at the recovery of the whales? Because I've heard things of, like, you know, supergroups of whales appearing and that sort of thing. Like... Yeah. Um, so that, that's something that we want to look into, the whole uh, super, super group formation of baleen whales. And, you know, is this related to, you know, poorer feeding conditions in Antarctica? We're not sure yet. Um, but I think considering that they are... They are establishing these supergroups and being able to cooperatively feed um, is a positive sign for sure. We haven't looked into that, though, um, at the moment, no. Adelaide, could you tell us a bit about how you got into studying whales? <laughs> um, I mean, like most people, I just find them just so giant and beautiful. And what I did in undergrad is I just basically did a bunch of different subjects and looked at and was just I wasn't sure what I wanted to do and I was just waiting for something to jump out at me and then I got into a lot of marine mammal stuff and I worked on southern elephant seals for a while but I I just had a soft spot for whales um and then basically because they they just they rely so heavily on having a successful summer feeding period before their migration I was really wanting to look at you know how this impacted their migration and and what the future for these whales looks like um so yeah that's just that's how I got into it and I think because I just love them so much I want to be able to forecast into the future like what it looks like for them and hopefully it's a positive a positive thing mm. And uh, this study, you were studying um, the baleen of whales in, in, in museums, but do you also get to go out on the water and, you know, see whales in the wild? Um, not for work, funnily. That's more of like a fun thing um, because obviously the baleen samples are reliant on um, being collected from stranded individuals. So most of them come from uh, museums. Sometimes I go to the strandings and collect the baleen myself. Um, but... Yeah, a lot of my work is lab-based, but I do get to go out on the boat just for fun and during whale season to make sure I get to see them in the flesh as well. That was Adelaide Denon from the University of New South Wales. And that's all we've got time for this week. To listen to this show again or any of our previous shows, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash radio blue. In the meantime, stay well and we'll be with you again next week.